Ministers, Excellencies, Distinguished Guests, Ladies and Gentlemen, welcome to this, the 11th Annual Lecture of the Hellenic Observatory here at the LSE. Over the years, we've had many high-profile speakers uh, in this series of public lectures. The Ecumenical Patriarch, the last three Greek Prime Ministers, Yanos Papandreou, George Alagoskoufis, Dora Bakayani, amongst others. But perhaps none of our guests have come to us after such a dramatic year as tonight's guest. Greece has hit the headlines around the world, from China to Jamaica, Chile to Denmark, and lots of other places. LSE academics and lots of others have been called upon to discuss and explain how the Greek debt crisis started and what its impact might be. And as you can see, uh, I guess uh, we have a wide variety of international journalists here with us uh, this evening around the room. Uh, and let me say that I'm not quite sure how easy it was for you to enter this lecture theatre, uh, but let me tell you, George, that um, these tickets for the lecture theatre are booked online. And uh, 500 tickets for this event went in less than 35 minutes. Did you charge for this? I was just going to say. <laughs> you, you've stolen my, uh, my only joke of the evening. Um, all of these people are here free. Uh, some of them paid by the British taxpayer, I think. Uh, perhaps they may bear in mind that this is a free occasion uh, when they come to put your, the questions to you later. But of course, the media coverage has been very extensive and we've learned a new vocabulary, or at least I've learned a new vocabulary, of credit default swaps, some of which are naked, <laughs> of haircuts that mean something else, and of credit rating agencies that seem to make judgments slightly more important than the X Factor TV show makes uh, judgments. Well, of course, August Papa Constantino has been at the heart of this ongoing news story. A year ago, he announced that Greece's deficit for 2009 was going to be treble the amount forecast by the previous government. Soon, he and the government were in what can only be described as a titanic struggle with the international financial markets. He then felt obliged to negotiate, uh, negotiate an unprecedented bailout with his EU partners and the International Monetary Fund. Today we have the Troika connected with the bailout and the memorandum in residence in Athens trying to monitor his every action. Greece is obliged to satisfy the conditions of the memorandum of the rescue package. Just over a week ago, I guess uh, George was, must have been in Brussels for an agreement on how to reform the Eurozone uh, and the treaty thereof. And I just had a glimpse of a headline today which said that the bond spreads between Greece and Germany are currently 972 basis points. So descriptions like whirlwind or fighting a financial tsunami have been uh, bandied about, and our speaker uh, has been at the centre of the action. 
he can reasonably claim to have met all the so-called stress tests, as it were, and to be steering Greece in the right direction. Uh, I'm proud to say that George is Dr. Papa Constantino because of the LSE. He was an undergraduate here in the economics department. He then did a master's at New York University, and then, more sensibly, he decided to return to the London School of Economics uh, to do his PhD. Please note that he went to the uh, New World, as it were, for a lesser degree, master's, but he came back to London for the PhD, which was intellectually more demanding, surely. <laughs> and uh, with George's permission, can I just pause at this point and to point out to everyone, possibly to remind everyone here, uh, that our colleague in the economics department, uh, Professor Christopher Pissarides, was recently awarded the Nobel Prize uh, for Economics, and we are tremendously proud of that. He is, that is Chris, is an active supporter of the Hellenic Observatory, is a member of our advisory board, and uh, can I invite you to give him a, a very warm round of applause for this. So with this kind of training from the economics department, from a Nobel Prize winning economics department, uh, George Papaconstantino has clearly been given a strong academic base on which to develop and explain his policies here this evening. Now for this evening, we've agreed a format where George will uh, follow me and speak for about 10 minutes or so with a few comments by way of introduction. And this is then to be followed by some questions which I will put to him here on stage. And then we will open up to questions and answers uh, with the audience. So the format is designed to give maximum possibility for engagement with you, the audience. Now, after you've listened to the economics, uh, we'll invite you all to join us for a reception in the foyer outside the theatre. So if you feel that after discussing the economics you need some alcoholic stimulus, <laughs> uh, then please just um, qualify your expectations. The wine will be courtesy of the LSE. <laughs> anyway, but first, before we uh, proceed, can you please uh, join me in giving a very warm welcome back to the London School of Economics for the Minister of Finance of Greece, George Papagonsantino. Thank you very much, and, and thank you all for being here. I was actually, Kevin, hoping to be doing this in the old theater, because then I would be able to tell that the last time I was on the stage was directing Bertolt Brecht's Three Penny Opera, oh. which I think was a very good precursor to what I'm actually trying to do. <laughs> uh, I have very fond memories of this place, uh, these six years. I met my wife here. She's actually an, an LSE alumnus uh, herself, another economist. It makes me worried sometimes that the number of uh, Greek ministers of finance have passed through this place. I don't know what that says about the country or the ministers or the school, but let's, let's leave this for another day. 
What I will try and tell you in, in, in 10 minutes before we open this up to a discussion is a tale which is as, as much about economics as it is about politics. The tale of a country that about a year ago discovered itself and its problems, saw the precipice coming, averted catastrophe, and is now on its way to do the kind of things that it should have been doing many years ago. The tale starts last October. You have a fresh new socialist government coming to power, having won an absolute majority in parliament, 157 seats in a 300-seat parliament, full of hope and uh, wanting to change things, having discussed a lot about transparency, rooting out corruption, changing the productive base of the economy, moving to a green economy, a new growth paradigm, more social equity, and then suddenly coming to power, only to discover that it was facing three immediate challenges. One was a terrible fiscal mess. We knew things were bad. What we didn't know is that the deficit was going to turn out to be double what had been officially reported by the previous government only a few days before elections. They had reported to the EC, to the European Commission, 6%. It ended up being 12.7. Eurostat next Monday is going to come up with the final figure for 2009, which is going to be substantially higher than that. Remember, this was a year when the budget was, for, was predicting a, the budget voted by Parliament, a deficit around 3%, actually below 3%. Multiply this by a, number, by a factor of at least 4 and that's where we ended up the year. Next to that, you had the more long-standing but pressing challenges having to do with a competitiveness problem. The country was clearly importing more than it was exporting, double-digit external deficit, not sustainable within the Eurozone if you do it over a number of years, which had ballooned over four or five years. And under that were broken institutions, public sector not working, corruption, lack of transparency, and clearly the citizens feeling that they were paying those of those that were paying their taxes were not getting anything back in return. And to cap it all, you had an immediate and perhaps most pressing of all, a credibility problem. <coughs> Nobody believed our numbers, nobody believed our policies, we had zero credibility. So we started what in effect was a race against time and a race against a rapidly closing window of opportunity with the financial markets that were until that moment clearly underpricing Greek risk. Up until January, February, clearly underpricing Greek risk. Waking up to a country with a huge deficit, with a debt over 100% and in a completely unsustainable path, and a worry about whether this new government was actually A, getting it, B, willing to do anything about it, C, able to do anything about it. So we started off with a budget that promised, pledged to reduce the deficit four percentage points. We convinced the European partners with a stability and growth program that uh, had a three-year horizon. We took additional measures when these were necessary, and yet these were not enough to 
convince a market that was rapidly coming to conclusion that we were a lost case. At the same time, the story has a plot which goes on in a different room, and that's Brussels. At the same time, the European Union, to be more precise, the Eurozone, is waking up to the fact that the institutional architecture that we built many years ago, where everybody realized that a common currency area without stabilizing mechanisms has a leg missing, while well, everybody was starting to realize that the textbooks were actually right. You cannot have a common currency area without a common economic policy. And what we had was a very much a second best. To that add the political calendar in a number of countries, their constitutional problems, there are no bailout uh, uh, written in the treaty, and you have an explosive situation whereby literally one day before a nine billion bond matured, we actually received the first tranche of a 110 billion loan that we agreed with the European Union countries, the Eurozone countries, and the IMF. In exchange of which, we pledged to a three-year, very tough economic policy program. 110 billion is the biggest sum ever loaned to a single country. 30 billion from the IMF. 33 times the Greek quota in the IMF. The IMF had never loaned this kind of money to any country. And certainly, the European, the Eurozone countries had never actually, in this short space of time, managed to assemble together a rescue mechanism. You can argue that it took them longer than it should have, yes. But you can't but marvel at the fact that at the end of the day, they were there. They rallied. And I think this is an important lesson for anyone doubting the ability of the Eurozone to defend itself. Yes, it's awkward, it's got its problems, different people going in different directions, but at the end of the day, the members are there for those that do the right job. Now, a three-year economic program with a fiscal pillar, a structural pillar, and a financial stability pillar. The fiscal pillar was, of course, the cornerstone, the centerpiece. A unprecedented three-year program to bring a deficit to below 3%, a front-loaded program with half of the whole adjustment in one single year, 2010. Never been done before. A second pillar, the structure, structural reforms, most of which we would have signed anyway and we were arguing for even as opposition. The need to open up closed profession the need to change the tax system, they need to have a budget that actually uh, doesn't uh, allow the state to discover ex post and have to cover debts in hospitals that were accumulating over years. These kind of things. And a financial stability pillar with a 10 billion financial stability fund as a safety net for a banking system that is very different from what for the banking systems in other countries and was not at the root of the problem but almost, I know it's hard to think of bankers that way, but almost a victim of the problems of the sovereign. Greece is not Ireland. You did not have a banking system ahead of itself that collapsed. 
you had a credibility problem with a sovereign that became a funding problem in international markets for a banking system. That was back in May. We're now in November. Where are we at? Well, we're going to close the year having, in fact, reduced the deficit by at least five and a half percentage points, hopefully more. We're about to hear next Monday what the final numbers for 2009 were. So we started from a higher point. Uh, our point of departure was, big, was higher. But actually, we have a correction which is bigger than five and a half points. And that is a first. This was done the hard way. It was done by cutting public sector wages 15%, cutting private and public sector pensions by 10%, increasing VAT by four percentage points, increasing excise taxes by 30%. Not easy things to do, certainly not easy things to do for a center-left government. But we had to do them. Had we had the time, we would have opted to simply change the tax system, crack down on tax evasion, and prove that you can increase your revenues in different ways rather than through increasing taxes. Had we had the time, we would have proved that you can slim down the public sector not through necessarily cutting uh, public sector wages, but in other ways. But there was no time. And these were precondition for signing on to this program. At the same time, we passed during this time the most sweeping pension reform attempted in any European country. A system that was very much crying out for reform and indeed is now sustainable over the medium term. Had we not reformed our pension system by 2050, the expenditure of pen on pensions would have gone from 12% to 25% of GDP. Clearly not sustainable. And five months after the beginning of the program, we have a financial sector which is beginning to show the first signs of life. Greece's biggest bank, the National Bank, uh, which is majority private owned. The state only has indirect uh, shareholding through its pension funds has done a mammoth capital share increase, making it a fortress. Other banks are following suit. International interbank markets are opening up for Greek banks. So the system is beginning to stabilize. Are we out of the woods? And I'm finishing soon so as to allow for the questions. No. This is the first step in a long and very difficult road, in a road where we have to look very much into ourselves and the Greek society has to look itself in the mirror and make some very tough decisions. What kind of a public sector does it need? What kind of political system does it want? That's not a discussion which is separate from what we're trying to do at the moment. But surprisingly, and last night's elections showed that, it is despite the hardship, despite the fact that We've been doing some pretty difficult things this last year. We have not been thrown out. We had elections last night. We came first with a much slimmer majority. These were regional elections, not national. If national elections were held tomorrow, we would win with a more narrow majority. So despite the protest, despite the pain, despite the increasing unemployment, despite the fact that businesses are closing down, there is an understanding out there that what is being done is necessary. And what we're trying to do is two things. One, show the perspective. 
Is there gain at the end of pain? Will these sacrifices amount to something? We think so. And two, to try and do it in as just, as, as socially just a way possible. It's not always easy. But we have tried, for example, to shield the lower paid, the lower pensions. I'm finishing with three lessons which are simple, I would even say simplistic, and that I take out of this whole thing. And there are lessons that have to do with Greece, but they also have to do with Europe. Lesson number one, things tend to catch up with you. If you delay for a very, it's very simple. If you delay for a very long time, eventually your broken institution, your fiscal policy will catch up with you. And as far as Europe is concerned, the lack of an institutional architecture for a really common currency area will catch up with you, as it has done in the case of Greece and other peripheral countries. <coughs> Lesson number two, time costs money. Had we acted earlier on a European scale, things would have been easier. The more we delayed, the more the price tag went up. But we acted. Lesson number three, stopgap measures are fine to put up the fire, but you need permanent mechanisms. And this is why the discussion at the moment that has started on a permanent mechanism to avoid such crisis in the future, on changing the Stability and Growth Pact, even though it is an incomplete discussion because it leaves out important elements around financial market regulation and growth uh, drivers, is an important discussion which is helping Europe not come up against the same problems that has come up in the case of Greece and in the case of other countries as we're seeing in the last months. Thank you. Now, the Hellenic Observatory contacted uh, students here at the LSE, and we invited them to give us questions which we could then put uh, to you, Minister, straight away. And I'm going to mention some of these uh, questions. There are many questions asked. Uh, but uh, we've made a, a selection. And I suppose to start off, uh, George, the starting point, I suppose, uh, is to refer to a number of critics uh, who feel that perhaps you delayed and played with fire at the beginning. And the first question I'm going to ask is from Dimitris Leis, a first-year student of the MSc Global Politics. Quote, it is said that you place defense expenditures that should have been in the 2010 budget into the 2009 budget instead. The effect was to greatly increase the deficits at a very crucial moment for the country. Similar moves have been made by previous governments. Doesn't this show a continuity in the petty political games that Greek political parties play? Short answer, no. <laughs> We're shocked by that answer, but would you like to <laughs> elaborate a little more? Defense expenditures, to take the particular point, are recorded in the deficit according to deliveries. In fact, uh, there was a big debate back in 2004 because the government at the time changed the method of recording and then eventually changed it back because recording on the basis of deliveries is what every European country does. Uh, so what we have done is to record in 2009 the deliveries of 2009 and 2010 the deliveries of 2010. Nothing more than that. People shouldn't look at these kind of possible changes, technical changes, to try and explain away a major fact 
which is that the budget in 2009 was completely out of control, above the line in the central government. Revenues collapsed, expenditure exploded. It's as simple as that. And if you look over the last four or five years, you will see the wage bill of the public sector increasing 40-50%. You will see expenditure for social programs increasing, doubling in size, without seeing a doubling in their effectiveness. You will see the deficits of public sector enterprises increasing at an alarming rate. A simple fact, the average wages in public sector enterprises in 2009 were 40% higher than in the central government sector and double than in the private sector. This is, they have increased over time, while at the same time numbers working went up. So the specific part to the answer is that we did no such thing. The more general uh, answer to the question of did we delay is the following. Elections were on October 4th. The vote of confidence by parliament was October 20th. I submitted a budget November 20. In these 20 days, we had to make a budget from scratch. And I submitted a budget that, was, that had a 4 percentage point reduction in the deficit with specific measures. So we did not delay. We took measures right away because we saw the problem right away. And then we kept adding measures as we saw that these okay. were convincing okay. to the EU, EU but not to the Could I then follow it up? That um, My memory suggests that after you announced at the end of October that the deficit for 2009 was going to be three times the size that the previous government had announced, uh, there was something like four or five weeks after that before the international financial markets started getting very anxious with the bond spreads. If you looked at the graph of the bond spreads, initially after you made your dramatic announcement, there was something like a five-week delay before the international financial markets really started to get nervous. Your second lesson here was time costs money. Those five weeks seemed to have cost quite a lot, didn't they? I'll double your five weeks to ten weeks. Okay. And I'll tell you that we had even more time than that before the financial markets woke up. And I will ask the, fo the following question. What would have happened if in December, December, by the way, is a very bad time to go to the markets, for two reasons. The markets are closing down, and uh, the various uh, financial houses are closing their books for the year. And secondly, because whatever you borrow in December shows up in your debt for the year. But let's say January, where the spreads were still logical. In January, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a line of uh, criticism that says, well, you went out in the market in January, you asked for $8 billion, and $25 billion was offered to you. Why didn't you just take $25 yes. billion? The answer is, if we had taken the $25 billion, which is something that nobody ever does, two days after that, the financial markets would have been completely closed for Greece. Two days after okay. that. Spreads would have gone to 1,000. And remember one thing, this was months before the EU had created the stabilization mechanism and the rescue package for Greece. So imagine Greece being shut out of the markets in January and not having a leg to stand on. How's okay, that? Okay. 
Another question from uh, the students was that uh, this is from Dimitris Karamanis, a third year PhD student in management. My parents are school teachers and they are faced with severe wage cuts. At the same time, tax evasion remains at very high levels. Please mention actual facts showing that this problem is being tackled. When would you expect the Greek economy to start benefiting from your action to tackle tax evasion? And to reassure my parents that fairness is at the heart of the policy. The students' parents are absolutely right. Tax evasion is a huge problem. It is a scandal. It is theft of public money. And it is a disgrace that we had to cut the salary of low-paid teachers and not being able to, in one fell sweep, fell swoop, uh, bring in all the tax revenues that were lacking. But unfortunately, you can't do that immediately. And even though I tried to argue with the so-called Troika, the EU, the IMF, and the ECB, we call them the Troika, that, look, you know, we're changing the tax law, and we're doing all these things, and this should increase my tax revenues because I'm bringing, in tax I'm bringing down tax evasion. They said, well, why don't you do it first? For the, for the time being, can you please cut wages? And then we can come back and talk about that later. And please increase your VAT rate by four points. Uh, later, once you've done something about tax evasion, we'll talk about it. Now, have we actually done something about tax evasion? Well, yes. We passed a law in April, which uh, refers to 2010 incomes on. So you'll see it from 2011 whereby we have introduced some simple things such as presumptive taxation based on proofs of living, standard of living. So if you are, say, a doctor, just to take one random example here, and you happen to live in a house in a nice northern suburb of Athens and have a second house in an island, have two kids in private school, own two cars, and declare 15,000 euro a year, well, according to the new system, you will be taxed for 100,000 automatically, whatever you declare, and then we'll go after you. So we are making simple changes to the tax system to automatically try and do something about tax evasion. We have beefed up the tax police, and we have begun to unearth things that were clearly hidden. For the first time, we cross-checked income and assets. This had never been done before to the extent that we did it. And we discovered that, yes, there were people with uh, multi-million dollar or euro houses declaring very low incomes. We went after them. We seized property. We seized yachts in marinas. Uh, and we prosecuted. The problem we're okay. faced with, and I will close with this, is that we have a very cumbersome judicial system. It takes seven to ten years for a tax case to be settled in the court. There's over 30 billion pending in Greek courts, 150,000 cases. Unless you do something about that, even if you reduce the probability of being caught, you don't reduce the probability of ever paying. 1% of fines that are actually implemented are paid to the state coffers. Why? Even though there's a law that says you cannot go to court before you pay 25% of any fine, you go to court and a judge waives that 25%. So we are changing that. We're passing a law now to shorten the time limit, to make sure that people cannot continuously appeal, and they cannot hide behind the judicial system. It's a battle. And the one thing that we hear most vocally from Greeks is, fine, do whatever you want, but please put some people in jail. And that is, and they're absolutely right. And we haven't done that yet.
Gosh, that sounds... Uh, perhaps we could take a vote as to who should be, end up in jail. But, um, <laughs> final question from uh, one of the students. This is from Vasiliki Tabul Tabularia, first-year student in management. Because of the economic crisis in Greece, many young Greek people have decided to go abroad in order to find uh, a good job. Can we be optimistic that in the near future, job opportunities in our country will gradually rise and those young people will be willing to come back to Greece? That's the hardest question to answer of the ones you've asked me. Because I wish I could simply say yes, but it's not that easy. It's a long process. And it requires much more than simply putting the economy back on track. It requires a real change in the educational system, a real change in the way the public sector works. It requires a change in attitude so that people don't see young people as uh, a liability in their businesses, but as a real asset. It requires a different business environment that pe so that young people can actually feel much stronger and have the funding to start new businesses. We're doing a lot of these things, but I could cannot claim at the moment that we have created an environment where this outflow, which we have not seen for a very long time, and we're seeing again, uh, can stop. I think we'll get there. I don't know how, how quickly. I hope soon enough to be able to convince many of you here who are Greek and are studying this place to come back to what is, in effect, a wonderful country with tremendous opportunities. And we're just not giving it justice. OK. I think some people may wish to follow up on that. Um, can I suggest, with your permission, that if we take, say, groups of three questions at a time, you may wish to make a note. Can we... Uh, Charles Grant, thank you. Uh, there's a microphone coming to you if you... Thank you. Uh, Charles Grant from the Centre for European Reform, a think tank in London. Um, even if you do as well as we all hope you'll do with your supply-side reforms in Greece, and the others, other southern European countries do the same, there's still a problem of demand. Where is the demand going to come from to generate growth in your country? Van Rompuy's task force's report does contain interesting proposals for imbalances within the Eurozone to be looked at and for recommendations to be made, and even uh, sanctions against countries that fail to adjust these imbalances, implicitly perhaps also sanctions for North European countries that don't remove them. So are you confident that that sort of mechanism could help to reduce imbalances and create demand? And if not, where will the demand come from? Okay, thank you. Um, could we, the lady to the, near the wall, please? Um, one lesson you mentioned in your uh, speech was the idea that things catch up with you. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that you imply from that that from now onwards, Greece would deal with a deficit earlier rather than later. Um, from the crisis, it's obvious that many countries didn't do that. Didn't do that. Do you think that? Um, do you think? My question is: Do you think that other countries have learnt to deal with the deficit earlier to the same extent that Greece has? And if they don't deal with the deficit as early as Greece are planning to in the future, do you think that could be a threat to the Greek economy? Okay, thanks. If we have a third question, the lady immediately next to you here. Uh, drawing back to the third question of uh, the student and considering that there are hundreds of uh, capable, highly educated and motivated forward-looking young Greeks abroad, 
I would like to ask you, what specific initiatives will your government take in order to finally get the right people in the right positions? Would you consider establishing a legitimate, non-partisan body responsible of harnessing this wasted talent and energy? How are you planning to stop Greece's brain drain? Okay, thanks. So three simple questions. Three simple Please questions. go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll, t I'll, t I'll take them uh, one by one. Uh, Charles Grant's question about where will demand come from. First of all, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned, because I think that's not very well understood, that the solution to the medium-term debt dynamic lies to a very large extent on where growth will be in a few years from now. And the potential growth rate depends to a very large extent on whether we are successful in what is, in effect, a supply-side shock. If you look at all the international comparisons, ease of doing business, competitiveness, uh, the Davos rankings, uh, in all of these, Greece is an outlier. Product market competition, labor market rules. If, as we're hoping, what we're doing produce some changes in all these indicators, this means that you are going to have a, an upward shift in your potential growth rate. And that will help you have more sustainable debt dynamics. Now, in a certain sense, supply creates its own demand, to quote a well-known phrase. We have lived for a very long time with a clearly unsustainable demand pattern in Greece. Growth was driven by domestic consumption, private domestic consumption and public domestic consumption. It can no, long, no longer be the case. So growth and demand will have to be export and investment driven, clearly. It has to substitute for the fact that for a number of years, domestic consumption is going to be much below where it has been. Here, and, and that links to your more general point. I am not one of those that think that all the European countries should press on the brakes and do uh, and I think this also links to the second question, and do deficit reduction in a way that will choke off growth. I think there is a story to be told whereby some countries, Greece is clearly one of them, need to do a serious deficit uh, belt tightening exercise. Others less so, and collectively as an EU, we need to think of growth drivers and of growth enhancing policies at a collective level. That's perhaps not a very popular idea at the moment, but I do worry very much if we simply all get into a situation where we are forced by markets to uh, reduce our deficits come what may. This will simply lead to a double deep recession, and I am very glad that the US has decided that it does have some leeway to continue some expansion, but I, I think because I think this is going to be very helpful for world growth. That brings me, yeah. Perhaps could you yeah. just add a couple of sentences about where would those growth drivers be in Greece? Well, you have the traditional Greek sectors that have driven growth, tourism and shipping. Shipping depends entirely on what happens outside Greece, and it has picked up because world trade has picked up. Tourism depends on having a product that people want to buy. We have a wonderful product. We often don't know how to package it. We don't know how to link it 
with health services, for example, with education services, with uh, um, products that are labeled and that make people want to buy them, with uh, the culture industry. Once you link this, you have a collection of sectors that, not by themselves, but are an important driver in the economy. Could I just ask, you said that uh, one of the drivers may be tourism, and you said visitors coming for health reasons and for education. Yeah. The hall is full of people who have exited the Greek university system. Indeed. But at the same time, the country has, if you look in the north, uh, significant uh, private hospitals that yes. attract people from throughout the Balkans. Greek universities, if they could only get their act together, could act as a hub for the broader region and attract a lot of people not from the UK, but from other countries. So okay. I do believe that there is a potential there. And then you have a number of other sectors building again or, or creating new competitive advantages around green energy, uh, using the sun, using the wind that we have, and around high-tech sectors which are possible in a country with the human capital that Greece has, because we have the human capital. Israel is a very nice example in that respect. Moving on to the question of yep. deficit and dealing with it earlier. We are now in a situation when, where every country is falling over itself to please the market. We may like it or not, but it's, that's the case. And every country has to prove that it has the, the, not just the ability, but the political will to you know, cut its hands and uh, uh, do all the difficult things to convince the market. This is not necessarily healthy, but that's the situation that we're in. Countries now have to move in a very abrupt way because it is true that over time they have not looked at the underlying dynamics of their public sector expenditures vis-à-vis -vis their revenues. If you look at Greece, 2009 we had a deficit, we ended up having a deficit of over 30 billion. 2010 we'll have a deficit around 20 billion. We're talking about a 14 billion, 14 to 15 billion reduction in the deficit. But even in 2010, if you end up around 20 billion, you still are spending 20 billion more than you have. That's not sustainable. You have to do something over time. And you cannot simply do something on the tax side because you're choking the economy with, and you cannot keep increasing taxes. You have to do something mostly on the expenditure side. And that has some very tough decisions about what you do with the public sector and what the public sector should be spending and shouldn't be spending. Third question, initiatives for, for young people. One thing that we are trying to do is to, because there's no magic bullet here, is to bring back a sense of confidence in institutions, transparency. We've opened up government jobs to an open process where people could simply apply and some were actually hired to their surprise. We have put all the decisions regarding spending of public money on the web as a legal requirement for those decisions to be valid. That's not been done in any other European country as far as I know. Why is this related to, to, to students or, or uh, Greeks coming back? Because I think that what is holding people back is a sense that they would come back to a country where institutions don't work, where there is a political system that doesn't represent them, 
and where a business sector is entirely dependent on the political system and isn't, in fact, looking for new talent. So you need to work on all those factors, on the issues of cleaning up the political system, improving the public sector system, and then opening up businesses and giving the possibility with specific initiatives. I'm not a great believer in kind of uh, saying, let's put aside 100 million euro to subsidize uh, you know, businesses from young Greeks coming from abroad. I don't think that is the answer. The answer is to have an economy working on a different basis. Uh, that's more difficult. It's not as uh, easy, but I think it's more sustainable than the other solution. Okay, thanks. Perhaps uh, three more questions. There's a gentleman in the middle uh, with a pink or red tie. Yes, I'd like to ask who you are, please. I'd like to ask. Uh, I'm a freelance consultant. I'd like to ask about uh, Greek bonds in particular. Um, can you confirm when the Ministry of Finance issues a bond at 100% that it actually considers that it is worth 100%. The reason I ask that is because there's currently a Prime Minister's inquiry suggesting that the previous government issued bonds that subsequently were only worth 85% of their value. And on the structure of bonds, were these transactions done fairly or fraudulently? Okay, thank you. Gentleman right at the very front, please. Isaac Karpidis, I'm a correspondent for Antenna TV. Uh, Is speaking this a question about of a journalist or a member of the audience? Um, <laughs> a question of a journalist. <clears throat> speaking about tourism, is that true that you had a meeting with Mr. Yerulanus, the Minister of, uh, uh, of Culture, uh, in order to reduce the VAT in some tourism products, such as accommodation? If that's true, are you going to do it? And if yes, when? Thank you. Okay, thanks. A gentleman there in the blue shirt. Yeah, uh, Greece receives an awful lot of blame. I want to know whether you have views about whether some of the blame lies somewhere else. And I suggest that what happened in Greece was as much a failure of European political elites as it was of Greek political elites. Everybody knew what was going on in Greece with respect to the official statistics. Everybody, however, was very keen to have Greece in the Eurozone. Everybody was very keen to make the project or the mission work. Um, when we wrote uh, the report 10 years of the Eurozone, somewhere, if one read it very carefully, there were a few comments about ballooning external deficits, which appeared to be the problem. Actually, people saw all this, but nobody said anything. So I'm a bit concerned that we blame only Greece. I want to know what your views are about the European political elites. Okay, thank you. Let me first deal with a question from the journalist, because I will, <laughs> I will clearly not divulge in London the contents of the 2011 budget, which I will be submitting to Parliament next Thursday, so I will pass. Uh, you'll have to wait until next Thursday to see if that is indeed the case or not. It's a very good opportunity because the world has a market Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> Uh, the question about bonds and their value, uh, well, 
you issue bonds at a certain value, of course, then the value depends on the market. And uh, bonds are trading at a much lower value than the one in which they were <coughs> issued. I assume that's not what you were talking about. You were talking about whether there was some sleight of hand in a certain sense. Perhaps there was in the past. What we are doing is being completely above board. And in fact, in the Eurostat figures that will come in uh, uh, next Monday, there will be a full accounting on the debt of all past swap exercise, for example. <coughs> but you know, this is a discussion which I keep seeing coming back, which has elements of truth and a little bit of hypocrisy also. For example, there's a lot of discussion about the 2001 famous swap that the Greek government did at the time, perfectly legally, as every other government in Europe did at the time. Over time, the rules changed. The subsequent government should have notified that under new rules, something should be added to the debt. It chose not to do so. So this links me to the third question, which is, is it all the Greek fault or are there other people to blame? I'm going to be very careful in answering that question. <laughs> um, you can have a very interesting discussion about what people knew and didn't and whether they shouldn't have reacted earlier or not. And I could go a long way to see some truth in what you're saying. But at the end of the day, a country needs to take care of its own problems. And a country has to face its own problems. We have a debt which, as it stands now, is not sustainable. It's beginning to be sustainable because of our policies. We cannot be running deficits of 20 billion euro. We cannot continue to have a competitiveness uh, falling over time. We cannot have institutions that are not working. We cannot have a tax system that is, does not deliver uh, services to citizens by taxing those that they should be taxing. Nobody else is to blame for that. Okay. Uh, the gentleman in the very center here, please. Minister Apostolos Gutzinis, I'm a lawyer at an international law firm. Uh, since 1981, uh, since 1981, your uh, your party has been in government for more than uh, I think 18 or 19 years. Uh, over the last 30 years, uh, since that since that year, Greece has received an enormous amount of uh, uh, support from the European Union, and has also shown a remarkable rate of economic growth. And yet, here we are, we, you know, we're almost bankrupt, or effectively bankrupt. In your opening statement, you asked the Greek society to look at itself and look at the mirror and decide what they're going to do. Um, as, I think it's a difficult question, but as, as a member of a political elite that has governed Greece for so long in, within very good conditions, have you looked, you know, or has the party or the political elite looked itself in the mirror and, and asked itself how it managed to bankrupt the country? Okay, thank you. Um, Roger Little here, the, uh, the gentleman with the red tie. <laughs> I, 
Lord Little. I um, very much agree with you that the, you know, and admire your saying that you know Greece has to address its own problems, and of course a lot of these problems would have existed whether or not you were in the euro, and you still have to address them whether or not you're in the euro. But I wondered if you if you um, are able to say anything about what you think about Germany's. I'm thinking of this from a European point of view. What do you think about Germany, having had these close dealings with Germany, um, what do you think about Germany's attitude towards the future of the European Union? Um, I think a lot of us were, in Britain were taken aback that the, you know, that, that the, the popular newspapers in Germany were rather like the Sun newspaper in Britain uh, in, their, uh, in, the, in their xenophobic attitudes. Um, but what about the German elite and can it deal with the populism of the, of, uh, that's obviously there in Germany uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, m makes it quite difficult, I think, to produce sensible forms of the euro area? You can tell when things get really bad, when other countries start having newspapers like the Sun. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us think it's really rather remarkable that Britain has a newspaper called The Sun. Anyway, uh, the gentleman in grey here, please. My question links into the steps that you're taking for future employment for the youth, and it kind of extends into uh, more structural reforms in the country with respects to productivity and how Greece is going to move forward. Um, I'm going to make an observation as someone who's worked both in Africa and in Greece. I worked for one of the country's largest private lenders. And the problem that I saw there in the private sector was nepotism to a very rampant degree. Now, when you responded previously, you said what steps were being taken in the, in the public sector. But I think the problem is far more endemic. It, it extends way beyond any problems which exist in the public sector in the sense that during my time there, I saw in one of the largest private sector banks people taking positions because they knew a manager or because their uncle was a director or because they had some connection to an employee in the bank, and not because they were the most qualified. I personally know of highly qualified candidates who had studied in the UK who did not get a position because they were not connected. And so I'm trying to understand how you can actually reform something like that when it's, it's literally at the core of the employment uh, policy of, of the country. Okay, thanks. Okay, uh, first question. I actually am proud of what the party that I am representing here has done for the country. We made mistakes, no doubt. But we took a country that was part of the developing world. We built institutions with problems. We built a social safety net incomplete. We built infrastructure and we managed to close the GDP per capita gap with the rest of Europe in the space of 20 years. And if you look at the numbers in the time that we governed and the time when others governed, I think there's a clear pattern of who is bringing the country forward and who is not. We did bring the country into the EMU. 
And we're very proud of that. So, yes, we look at the mirror every day. But I don't think there's such a thing as a general political elite. This, and I don't mean you, obviously, this often hears this from the very people that were responsible for a lot of the disasters and are refusing to admit to the fact that they were at, at, at the very heart of, the, of today's troubles. Until 2004, you had a country which was on a razor's edge in terms of its debt. It was stabilizing, even going down a bit. Why? Because it was growing fast and because the numerator was pretty much under control. Not fantastically under control, but pretty much under control. This is a country that in 2004 organized the Olympics and showed itself to the world as a modern, open country able to do a very difficult feat in a very short time. And there was a moment there where we could actually build on these achievements and address the root problems that we had not managed to address. The issues of a political system that was problematic, corruption in the public sector, all these things. And that moment was lost. I don't want to make this into a purely party political uh, statement. As I said, I think we also have made many mistakes, and we've owned up to them. But I think any outside observer that looks at the history of the Greek economy over the last 20, 30 years pretty much has a good idea of who has contributed and who hasn't. We would not be where we are today had there not been these five and a half years of total disgrace that we've lived from 2004 to today. Could I ask if we would be here today if um, there was anything to say sorry for the 1980s and the uh, accumulation of the deficits in the 1980s? In 1981, the debt-to-GDP ratio was about 30%. In 1989, it was 60%. In 1992, it was 110%. Guess who governed between 89 and 92? It wasn't us. And between 81 and 89, you had the creation of a social sector, which did not exist before. You had the creation of a, of a social safety net. There was nothing before that. Yes, there were excesses in that period. Yes, they were increased. There were public sector enterprises that shouldn't have been, wage increase that shouldn't have been. But you, you, you took what was a peripheral economy and gave it some of the institutions of an advanced country. So we can look back at that period, look over the excesses, and I'll be the first one to talk about them. But there was something that was being, uh, was being built. Germany. And we can keep discussing this forever. But uh, Germany. Roger is trying to get me into trouble. It's okay. It's an intimate audience of 400 <laughs> and uh, 20 media organizations from around the world. But yeah. do be frank. Uh, whenever I, 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 I sit around the ECOFIN or the Eurogroup table, I generally try to put myself in the shoes of the person I'm talking to. And any minister has to deal with a national constituency with an institutional infrastructure, with a specific constitutional court in the case of Germany, and with a public press such as the one that, that Kevin was talking about. 
I don't worry too much about the public press, except in that it might have made certain German tourists decide to go to Turkey instead of coming to Greece. That is, that is a problem. I do worry if it infects the way that the German political system sees Greece. I don't see evidence of that. I think that they're caught in their own problems, their own contradictions, and I think this is uh, the, the, in their own transition from a country that strongly believed in Europe to a country that is having some second thoughts about whether, what its role in Europe should or shouldn't be and how it can define rules for the rest of Europe. It's very tough for them. Sometimes it's tougher for us as a result. But I am very open in disagreeing with certain things, as, for example, in the case of the discussion that has opened up about a permanent mechanism and the idea that in that permanent mechanism you should clearly include a basically orderly exit option, masquerading as private sector participation. Now, private sector participation sounds great. In principle, we're all for it. Banks should also pay. In practice, private sector participation to the mind of the market is debt restructuring. If you open up that door, even if it relates to the future, you're sending a very strong signal that it could relate to now. And that's a problem. And I think a number of other countries and the European Central Bank have identified that problem. And that's a discussion that we have to have very openly amongst ourselves. I'm not sure where it will lead. Again, the acceptance of the need for a permanent mechanism is a giant step forward for Europe. The strings attached to it are something we need to discuss very, very carefully so it doesn't blow up in our faces. Finally, uh, nepotism. nepotism. Yes, nepotism in the private sector is evidence of basically an underdeveloped private sector which works without governance rules. Uh, it is, I, I would like to think that it is diminishing, not because people are more enlightened than they used to be, but because you cannot run a company based on nepotism if you don't hire people who are capable of doing the job. And as times get tougher, people who would hire on those bases hire more on the basis of merit. And this is, and as kind of big businesses that were owned by, by particular families in Greece become more diluted and are now run by professional managers who are looking at the profit margin and the ability of the firm to grow, well, they go out and they look for people who can do the job, and less so for the nephew or the friend of. I'm not claiming it doesn't exist, it does. I'm not claiming it's going to go away immediately, but I do think that just as the whole country is changing, the private sector is also learning to go with a different set of rules than it has in the past. We cannot do very much except encourage that direction, for example, through corporate governance rules. Uh, what we can do, certainly, is make sure that this kind of clientelism and nepotism doesn't operate it where we have a direct impact, which is uh, the public sector. And what we can also do is operate in certain sectors and areas. For example, opening up closed professions. So that the pharmacy is not simply bequeathed by the pharmacist to his pharmacist daughter or son. 
by some kind of divine right. These are the kind of changes uh, where you open up professions uh, that allow young people to come in where they couldn't before. Okay, thanks. Uh, time for a few more uh, questions. Um, the gentleman in blue here, please. In the center here, right, at the right on the third row. Hello. Um, Todoris Barjotas, I'm a psychiatrist, so my question will be more of a psychological nature. Um, in the Is this past, a free session? Yes. In the past, when <laughs> in the past when Greece has been uh, in difficult times, uh, people have reacted by being united and trying to get, um, fight the enemy, so a common front against the enemy. That's not what we see now. So it's difficult times, but what we see is different groups of professionals or different groups of people uh, sort of fighting against each other. Um, so what makes you, it's a twofold question. The one is, what makes you show that after two, 2013, when you're planning to, when you think that the country will be out of the financial recession or the depression, what makes you think that also there won't be a generation of miserable and uh, de depressed people? So, <laughs> you know, and the second is how much uh, is, from the financial point of view, how much do you take that psychological impact uh, into account uh, and the financial impact of uh, people being very distressed and um, miserable with the, okay, all these decisions? So how much, uh, how, how much the long-term financial effect of that is taken into account? Thanks. Okay, thanks. Uh, perhaps if we go back to the gentleman just next to you here. Yep. Thank you. My name is Yorgos Saravelos. I work in London. Um, I'd like to go back to the question on growth because I think one of the biggest concerns of the Greek people is that there's a lack of growth vision on the part of the government and everyone's focusing on fiscal consolidation but really people don't see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of growth. And you mentioned health and education which Greece seems to have uh, strong endowments in both. I'd add financial services seem to be doing quite well as a hub. But if you look at government policy, it doesn't really seem to be supporting these sectors. So. Financial services, um, the Prime Minister is, and I know this might sound controversial, but uh, bonuses are being taxed at 90%. So, you know, if there's any people coming from London back to Athens, uh, they're being pushed away. Um, if I look at education, the Prime Minister used to support uh, non-for-profit private universities, uh, and your government reversed that position, and it only seems that true growth in education can come from the private sector rather than the public one. Uh, the recent investment law by the development ministry explicitly excludes both health and education from money that's provided to, uh, to private sector companies. Uh, and doctors are being routinely targeted. You yourself uh, use the example of a doctor as, being, uh, as, as evading tax. That's not to say that doctors don't evade tax, but my point is you're not really providing a consistent message about the private sector being able to contribute to growth and a specific growth vision. So I'd just like you to, to be more specific about that. Okay, good, thanks. Uh, gentleman with the white shirt uh, at the back. Thank you for coming here. Ioannis Jokos from Credit Suisse. Um, when you started uh, your speech, you said, you said there were two problems that you woke up to. One was the budget deficit, that was a number. Uh, the second one was competitiveness, it was more qualitative. Then you went, uh, you went ahead and you talked about how you're going to tackle the first problem. You didn't talk so much about tackling the second one. I understand the negotiations with uh, the European Union 
must have been tough. I wouldn't want to be there myself. Uh, but how, how different, how would you have, how would you have acted uh, if there were no negotiations in place? What would be your vision uh, of a competitive Greece five years from now uh, if that didn't include tackling the budget deficit? Thanks. Okay. okay. I'll take the, the question from the psychiatrist uh, first. And, and I'll tell you a story that was told to me by a friend. He said, we were in this group of people the other day. There were some public servants. There were some teachers. There were some professionals, uh, some people, some shop owners. And all the professionals and the shop owners were going after the, the public servants and the, and the teachers saying, you know, you guys are lazy. You don't work enough. You don't do anything. You are overpaid. You have too much vacation. And then the wife of one, and then the others kept, you know, answering. And then the wife of one, at some point, got so fed up that she got up and said, "Look, I'm the accountant to all of you. If I open my mouth, you'd all be in trouble." <laughs> we are in a situation where, because things are tough, you do have different groups in society blaming each other. There's enough blame to go around. There's enough blame to go around respect to how the public sector works, what the public's efforts do and don't do, their productivity. There's enough blame to go around about whether people in the free professions pay their taxes properly, whether businesses are operating as they do in other countries. So going back to the question of the looking at the mirror, we can all look in the mirror and find problems. I don't know where this will take us. I know that it is a very difficult situation at the moment. People are hurting. And when you hurt, when you, know, you have the specter of unemployment in front of you, when you're a public servant and you had a had 15% pay cut in one year, things get tough and you blame everybody else. I like to think that at the end of this, there is a silver lining because you have a better economy and a better society built on better values. What we, we are an individualistic nation. We know that. We don't have the collective in ourselves. It doesn't come naturally to us to be collective. Yet we know that we thrive in different environments where institutions work. So there's nothing wrong with our DNA. In fact, we have great DNA. We prove it whenever we work in societies that actually work. Why can't we do it in our own society? So my point is, if you operate on these things, and if you work on the institutions, if you work on incentives and disincentives, if you make clear that there are rules and everybody needs to respect those rules, and you don't make exceptions for your friend, your neighbor, your uh, voter, then eventually you convince society that there is a collective good out there and we all need to go after it. I don't have a better answer to that. Growth and division. First, a small point about the 90% uh, tax on bonuses. Uh, I'll defend that. I think that's a legitimate, legitimate policy to have. We're not the only one. The US had it. When you are actually paying and helping all the banks, and when you have excesses in payments to top managers and banks, which in no way reflect 
their productivity, then you can have, as we have, ha as we have put, a 90% top tax rate, which does not affect the 1,000 or 2,000 uh, euro or pound bonus that somebody in, in, at the, uh, you know, will get in, in a private bank, but does affect the huge bonuses that some people in management got, which were in Greece, as in other country, completely out of control. So I'm not going to apologize for that. Now, the, the issue of the, of the growth vision, the vision thing, as somebody would say, what you have here is the necessity to convince people that you have a public sector which is balanced. In other words, it doesn't to convince people that the social contract still works. They pay their taxes, they get something back. Businesses can start and work with a minimum of bureaucracy, and at the end of the day, the tax man is not going to come knocking on the door asking for a bribe so he can go away. These are the basic things behind a real, true growth story. Then, if you have achieved all this, then you can start talking about individual growth sectors, growth drivers, tourism and the others that we've talked about. But to be able to talk about sectoral growth drivers, you first need to get the fundamentals right. There will be no growth in Greece if you don't bring confidence of international markets back. Why? For a very simple reason. There is no growth without investment. There is no investment with markets closed. And markets will only open when they see deficits coming down and confidence returning. So it's very simple. We can talk about growth forever here. Growth will start <coughs> resuming only once deficits are under control. And of course, you then do all the things, the kind of structural reforms I've talked about, I want to repeat myself, and then you look at individual sectors. And we have, I have nothing against uh, uh, doctors, but uh, my data do tell me that it's one of the professions with the highest tax evasion in Greece. <laughs> and therefore, I will go after them, uh, not because uh, of any kind of vindictive attitude, but because uh, one of the first things I did uh, was to look in the most expensive area in Athens, Kolonaki, most of you know it. I asked my IT people in the, tax min in the ministry to give me the... the the doctors in that area, there were 150. 30% of those were declaring incomes below tax-free level, below 12,000 euros. I rest my case. Now, third point, uh, competitiveness issues and how to tackle them and what would you do without the MOU. No, there's, there's a demonization at the moment in Greece about the MOU. People equate the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding that we've signed with our partners in the EU and the IMF, with wage cuts. But the MOU is not just about that. The MOU is about structural reform. It's about, I'll say it again, opening up closed professions, opening up markets, removing impediments to business. It's about assessing your social programs and make sure they work. It's about fundamental reforms in the education system. It's about opening up the education system, one of the problems of the previous question. They're all in the MOU. 
and they're all things that we wanted to do in the first place and we negotiated a lot of this within the MOU obviously we did not come to power wanting to cut wages and pensions these were necessary to do because we were at the point where we were but a lot of what is the MOU are policies that this country needed they are policies to increase competitiveness you don't simply increase competitiveness but by, by cutting wages our unit labor costs have already fallen as a result of some of the measures that we've taken and competitiveness is not simply about price competitiveness it's also about non-price competitiveness about institutions it's about producing goods that other countries can buy and moving up the value chain and that has to do with investments investments in innovation investments uh, by highly qualified human capital and building on all these are also depending on measures that are in the MOU and we're going to be implementing over the next few years. Okay, I'm afraid with the time, it's gone very quickly and we have to bring matters to uh, a conclusion. Can I just explain that uh, the lecture this evening and the uh, discussion uh, will be available as a podcast from the LSE's uh, website and you can download that uh, shortly. Uh, as we finish, can I give a couple of uh, thanks? Uh, firstly, to our colleagues in the conferences office at the LSE, which do a very professional job in organizing these events. And secondly, to my colleagues in the Hellenic Observatory for having administered and organized the event uh, so professionally. Uh, I'm asked, I've just been given uh, a note by the uh, security colleagues. Uh, as we finish, can I please ask you to remain in your seats whilst the minister exits up that gangway? And could you please um, not uh, delay the minister as he exits the lecture theatre? It'll be tempting, I know, but please restrain yourself. Uh, and you know that there is a reward immediately outside this lecture theatre. The minister will be available for a reception and we ask all of you, invite all of you, to come and join us at that reception immediately outside. So the quicker we get out, the better. So can you please remain in your seats? However, can I uh, please ask you now to uh, join me in giving a very warm appreciation uh, to our speaker this evening. <laughs>